out. You know, if I have no handout, it could go two, three hours. Well, I figure as long as you got something in your hands, you can take it, study it on your own. But tomorrow night we will uh, get to the question I mentioned on Sunday. Based on a teenage guy in a high school, Christian high school, Bible doctrines class, who was really struggling with the fact that so many different churches in Pensacola all believing something slightly different, and then thinking about going back through the past and the Old Testament and the New Testament. And he said, what do all believers have to have in common? And of course, I told you he mistakenly referred to different denominations as different denominators. There's so many different denominators in Pensacola. How do you know who's right and who's wrong? How do you decide? Well, Tomorrow night, we're going to look at what is the common denominator. What is it through all time and eternity that is the common denominator? How does a person come to know Christ as Savior? Has it changed down through the centuries? Has it changed from Old and New Testament? Has it changed from one country to the other? What does God's Word have to say about that? And so... As I put together this study, that's why I tried to include almost every key reference that I could to save ourselves time tomorrow night, so that's the reason for the, the handout. But I hope you'll have something tomorrow night that you can take with you and study on your own and look up all the passages, follow along on your own and just see, have we come to the right biblical conclusion based not on what I say, but based on the unchangeable Word of God? So that's tomorrow night. Tonight, I'd ask you to turn with me to Exodus chapter 20 as I tackle another tough question that has come up over the years about a little phrase that's found in the middle of the Ten Commandments that unfortunately has literally struck fear into the hearts and lives of some sensitive believers. They don't know quite what to do with it. And it seems over the last five, ten years with the increase in what we learned from DNA and uh, the fact that so many cold cases have been solved as a result of finding that connection with cousins and nephews and nieces. And if you ever commit a murder, you better watch out. You're probably never going to be in the clear. Just let me tell you that. Uh, you left any of your DNA at all, they're going to get you. Uh, even if you don't have any children, they'll probably find it through some uh, offspring from other individuals or even somewhat indirectly connected with you. So anyway, uh, I guess that's a good reason not to, to kill people. Right, brother? Amen. Uh, but there's a little phrase, and uh, most folks are shocked to find it in the middle of the Ten Commandments. It has been used to discourage some people from adopting. It has been used to strike fear into the hearts of parents as they raise their children, that there are things within that child's little heart that it does not matter how you train them. They are going to end up exactly the way they are programmed to end up. Well, I hope I've got your attention probably heard the phrase many times, but I want to look at it tonight. Of all the messages I preach, there's one lady, one precious lady, a good friend of ours, my wife and me, in Pensacola, Florida. 
If you were to see her today, her first name is Cece, if you were to ask her what's the favorite message that I ever preach, she would direct your attention to the one I'm going to preach tonight, entitled The Iniquity of the Fathers. What exactly does that passage mean? What does that verse mean when it talks about the iniquity of the fathers shall be visited upon the children to the third and fourth generation? More misunderstanding, more misinterpretation from this little phrase here than just about anything I've discovered in the entire rest of the Word of God. Follow along as I read in Exodus chapter 20, and I'll read the first six verses. Exodus chapter 20. And verses 1 through 6. And God spake all these words, saying, I am the Lord thy God, which have brought thee out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image, or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them, nor serve them, for I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate me, and showing mercy unto thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments. Let's bow for a word of prayer. Holy Father, quiet our hearts. I know we've all had busy days, but may we receive the truths from the word of God that you've given us so many years ago. May we understand exactly what you meant, and may from this passage we be motivated and encouraged to live by the truths of this passage of Scripture. We pray all these things in Jesus' name, amen. In some circles, it's called generational sins. Have you ever heard that phrase? Ladies and gentlemen, tonight, according to some people, you are the victim of an inheritance of parents, grandparents, and great-grandparents. And no matter how you try to live, no matter how you try to read the Word of God, how, no matter how you try to live righteously, it will not matter because you are the unfortunate and helpless victim of generational sin. Is or are certain sins genetic? Well, it certainly sounds like it here when it says that this iniquity will be visited upon the children, not just to your generation, but to the next generation and the next generation for three and four generations. This particular little phrase is not only found here, it's found three other times in the Word of God in Exodus 34, 4 to 7, Numbers 14, 4, and 15 to 18, and then Deuteronomy 5, 8 to 10. Are children judged for their parents? And if it's not genetic, then do they receive a judgment for sin because of sins that their parents committed years ago? In a sense, I'm dedicating this part of the message to my mother, who truly believed that, was taught that, went to a church that was told because her father left her mother when she was four years of age, that there was absolutely nothing she could do about it, she was going to receive the inheritance of a spirit, an attitude, a sinful nature directly from her dad. In fact, she told me over and over again so many times growing up, if her mother ever wanted to make her cry, 
She was a disobedient young lady. All that her mom had to do was say, Mary Jane, you're just like your dad. And she would break into tears. So in a sense, I dedicate this message to my mother that lived in the shadow of that belief most of her life until she came across a chapter that we'll get to a little bit later in our message tonight. Do children inherit particular tendencies to particular sins from their parents? For example, if I have a problem with anger, does that mean my children will automatically, by virtue of DNA, also have a real serious problem with anger? If someone has a problem with lust, is that something over which they have no control? Because they received it from parents, grandparents, and great-grandparents. If your parent was an alcoholic, you have no chance, according to thinking of some. Now, if you were listening to the passages I read, I hope you can kind of begin to see through a few of the things I've already said. There's some major problems with all of those interpretations. For example, did you notice as we read it, that whatever this is, this iniquity, this visit upon the children to the third and fourth generation, it's for those who hate God. So whatever this passage is talking about, it first of all is very specific to remind us that it is something that has to do with people that hate God. Well, what about those of us who love the Lord? Good news, verse 6, and showing mercy unto thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments. So I want to look at this passage tonight, and I'm going to look at both sides. First of all, we're going to look at what this passage does not mean, very simply. What does it not mean? Then we'll turn it around 180 degrees. We'll try to figure out what it does mean. And then I'll get real practical in my third point tonight. And what does it mean for you and me in the year 2021? As we raise our children, as we come to church, as we have the privilege of being grandparents or even great-grandparents, what exactly does it mean by that third and fourth generation concept? So number one, what the passage does not mean. What the passage does not mean. First of all, it does not mean that children inherit a tendency for certain, for certain sins from their parents. Let me say that again. It does not mean that children inherit a particular tendency for particular or certain sins from their parents. Now granted, Romans 5.12 does teach us that there is a sin nature that is passed on from generation to generation. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. So, yes, it's true that the overarching principle of original sin is passed from parent to child. Now, when I was writing the Bible Doctrines book, I was desperately trying to find that verse somewhere in the Bible that clearly indicated that original sin came through the female. Because I knew that my wife had to be at fault. Well, I couldn't find it. But amazingly, nor could I find any verse in Scripture that says original sin comes through the man. Now, if you can find it, please tell me, and I'll include it in the next edition of the Bible Doctrines book. But I don't think it's there. 
we kind of come at that truth kind of through the back door. Here's how it works. Jesus Christ was virgin born. There must have been a reason for it. It must have to do with the fact that he could not have original sin because he was sinless. Therefore, the reason why he was virgin born is so that he would not inherit original sin from his a biological father. Well, that's great thinking. It is logical. It makes perfect sense. But I still have no verse in the Bible that tells me that. I mean, the closest one probably would be Romans 5, 12, 4, as by one man sin entered in the world. But the word for man oftentimes is talking about mankind. Uh, but anyway, that probably comes as close as anything. For the young lady, not so much young anymore, that appreciates this message, the reason why she appreciates it so much is because they decided, wow, 25 years ago or more, to adopt three children because they could not have children of their own. And she went to a seminar, a Bill Gothard seminar, and in that seminar he made this statement. Adopted children are affected by the sins of their natural parents, and these sins are usually very severe. Sins of parents are passed on to the third and fourth generation. Just as physical weaknesses are passed down through parents, so are spiritual weaknesses such as pride, lust, and rejection. And then in parentheses, Gossard has the reference, see Exodus 20 verse 5. I'm not wanting to be unkind, but over the years I've noticed that somebody doesn't want to tackle the exposition of a passage. You just kind of put the reference in parentheses and hope for the best. Maybe people won't look it up. Maybe they won't actually study it out to see what it really says. But anyway, you know, kind of like P.S., parentheses, you need to look up Exodus 25 and that answers all your questions. Well, no, actually it doesn't. It just brings in more than it solves. Then he continues. Parents are usually strict with their children in areas where they as parents failed. However, an adopted child usually has a different set of sinful tendencies. So he's not the only one, but over the years there have been many that have kind of taken up the banner for you should never adopt, but if you do, you better be very careful. Because you're used to the sins that you struggled with, so therefore, those are the kind of sins you're going to watch out for in your biological children. But your adopted children are going to throw you a curve. You're not expecting that. They're coming at life from a different angle. So all of a sudden, they're coming at sinful tendencies and different ideas that come from a different direction. And you're not ready for that because that's not what you lived through. That's not what you battled when you were growing up. But I have a serious problem with this thinking. And this interpretation. First problem I have with that, if that were true, if we somehow pass particular sinful tendencies on to three and four generations, then that verse really doesn't do what you want it to do or say what you want it to say. It's that little catchphrase, three and four generations, that does you in. Let me explain. I've done a little genealogy. I know that my great-grandfather's name was William E. Bear. <clears throat> Lived in Burkittsville, Maryland. I've been to his grave. He was a sexton of a church up in that area, a small little church, but because he was a sexton of that church, did a kind of the maintenance around the place, 
They gave him a little uh, kind of a one-room cabin out in the back right next to the cemetery. So he's now buried pretty close to where he lived most of his life. Well, let's just pretend for fun here tonight that William E. Bear, my great-grandfather, had a serious temper. I don't know that. I really know very little about him. But let's just pretend he did. Okay, according to this passage, and according to the interpretation of some, that means that for three and four generations, each of us will have a serious problem with temper. Right? I mean, that's what they're teaching. So that means that not only William E. Bear had a temper, but it's going to be passed on to his three and four generations, which means, first of all, my grandfather, Albert Bear. Then it was passed on to my father, Melvin Bear. And then on to me, Mike Bear. But wait a minute. As I stand before you here tonight, I'm not just the end of a train. I'm not just the caboose. I'm also the beginning of another three and four generations, am I not? And so, if I have that problem with anger that I received from William E. Bear, it's going to be passed on three and four generations from me. I mean, that's what the passage seems to teach. That means, didn't have a son, but let's just pretend. That means my son, let's say Yogi Bear, Yogi Bear is going to have a problem with temper. But not only that, as Yogi Bear grows up, he's going to have a son. Let's pretend again. And his name, I suppose, Teddy Bear. Ted E. Bear. And Ted E. Bear, what's his problem going to be? He's going to have a problem with what? Are you with me? Temper. And his son is going to have a problem with temper because, after all, the iniquity of the fathers, now in this case we're talking about me, shall be visited upon the children to the three and four generations that hold it. Teddy Bear is going to grow up, and he's going to start another chain of three and four generations. Is he not? I mean, if that's what the verse says, then he is going to start something where each of his offspring and grandchildren and great-grandchildren will also have a problem with temper. And I can go all the way out into the future for the next 10,000 years, but I also can go back in history for the last 10,000 years. Really what this passage should be saying, if those like Gothard are right, visiting the iniquity upon the children to all generations. That's what it needs to say if they really want to teach what they're teaching. There has to be something in the proper interpretation of this passage that stops this thing after three and four generations. What could it be? Well, we're going to get there. So first of all, I have a problem with this. It cannot be that children inherit a tendency for certain sins because it would be a discriminating genetics. And if that were true, it would, could, could not stop after three and four generations. There's nothing in DNA that all of a sudden stops it from being passed to the next generation. So as much as we find study of DNA, and I think it's great, but as much as I enjoy the study, and yes, I did the test where they tell me all my relatives and who they are. I got the results back. I had a special deal, so my wife got it for my birthday. And so I did all that, and I've got relatives from Germany and Northern Ireland. And then it gives you all the people, the second cousins and third cousins that you're halfway even possibly related to. Some even had pictures of them in the, re in the re report from the DNA headquarters, whatever. 
course, I looked at them, and half of them looked like they'd been in and out of prison a dozen times. So I haven't contacted too many of them. They look pretty suspicious to me. But anyway, you know, you can do all this, and it's a fascinating study. And if you love genealogy, it's just a, it's a great thing. But the problem is it doesn't follow the Scripture. It's not that children inherit a particular tendency for certain sins. Next, it does not mean that children are judged for the sins of their parents. It does not mean that parents, or excuse me, that children are judged for the sins of their parents. I'll give you a few references. You can check them out for yourself. We'll not take the time to look at each of these tonight. But in Deuteronomy 24, 16, the father shall not be put to death for the children. Neither shall the children be put to death for the fathers. Every man shall be put to death for his own sin. 2 Chronicles 25, 4. But he, Amaziah, slew not their children, but did as written in the law in the book of Moses, where the Lord commanded, saying, The fathers shall not die for the children, neither shall the children die for the fathers, but every man shall die for his own sin. We get over to the New Testament, John chapter 9. Christ heals the blind man. You remember the discussion that took place early on? The question is asked, Who has sinned? This man or his parents? Surely the reason why he has to walk around blind, he is being judged because of something his parents did. Now, by the way, this is really when it really comes home to some folks. Because I've seen... I suppose in my lifetime, probably over 20 precious Christian mothers who struggled when the child they gave birth to had some type of deformity. I remember Pastor Shetler down in Pensacola when Luke was born with one eye. Marilee Shetler struggled with that for months, believing even though she knew the truth Still, there's something in your heart that says, Dear God, what did I do? What did I do wrong? What could I have done differently so that my child would not have to go through this? And so on. I remember just counseling so many like that. It is nothing you did. Just like that blind man. What did the Lord say in response to that typical, very standard reaction? Oh, it must be if he didn't do something wrong, if he's not being punished, then it's surely because his parents did something wrong and they're being punished and that's why their child is blind. What was the answer? Neither hath this man sinned nor his parents, but that the works of God should be made manifest in him. The answer, the bottom line, is that so God could get all the glory. If it were true that we were going to be judged for things that happened generations ago, we'd be of all people most miserable. How could you go throughout life? How could you even wake up in the morning if you had this cloud hanging over your head like my mother did for years, somehow, some way, that everything she did that fell apart and every time she committed a sin, it was, she was always reminded by her mother that it's because of your dad you are just like him, and he is a mess, and he's disappointed. In fact, he was the, if ever there was a guy you could call the town drunk, it would have been my grandfather who I never met. And she was told, you're going to turn out the same way. 
you have absolutely no hope of ever going in the right direction. Well, that's what the passage does not mean. Let's quickly get to number two, what the passage does mean. First of all, whatever it is, it's only visited upon those who hate the Lord. So that should give all of us some comfort right now before I even get into the rest of the passage. It's visited upon those who hate the Lord and always contrasted with God's mercy who is given to those who love the Lord. Second idea. This iniquity is always referred to in the singular. The iniquity, singular, of the fathers. So if you hear someone say, well, in your family it's a problem of anger. And yet over here in this family it's a problem of pride. And over here it's the problem of lust. And over here is the problem of being an alcoholic, a drunkard. You've already disqualified yourself from the correct interpretation. It is the one and only iniquity of the fathers that is visited upon the children to the third and fourth generation. And we're really told in the passage what it's referring to. It has to do with hating God. What is the sin that is best defined as the sin against God that involves hating Him. And it comes down, I believe, to one word, and that is the iniquity of idolatry. If you love God, you serve Him. If you hate God, you serve idols. You replace God with anything and everything you can possibly come across. That's why we remind that no man can serve two masters. A.W. Tozer says it well. Among the sins to which the human heart is prone, hardly any other is more hateful to God than idolatry. For idolatry is at the bottom a libel on God's character. The idolatrous heart assumes that God is other than He is, in itself a monstrous sin, and substitutes for the true God one made after His own likeness. We want a God we can in some measure control. Let us beware lest we in our pride Accept the erroneous notion that idolatry consists only in kneeling before visible objects of adoration and that civilized people are therefore free from it. The essence of idolatry is the entertainment of thoughts about God that are unworthy of Him. That is idolatry. The context of Exodus 20 has to do with exactly that theme. You read the verses before, you read the verses after, Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven images. The problem here is idolatry, putting something else in place of God. Is that the kind of iniquity that then would be visited upon the children for three and four generations? Absolutely. You watch the nation of Israel as they are becoming steeped in idolatry. It will be passed to the next generation, not through genetics, but simply because children grow up in a home where they see parents every day of their lives serving some wicked idol. You go into some of the Asian countries, it'll be much more visible as to what this passage is talking about. My daughter has the privilege of teaching there in Guam and has a lot of students from an Asian background. It's quite the challenge for Harvest Ministries in Guam to see many of the students there come to know Christ as Savior. 
because to do so, they'll probably be ostracized by their families. And these young people that come to this school and hear the truth, yet they have been living all their lives in the shadow of going to the home of great-grandparents who have idols on a shelf. And then they go to the home of some grandparents who have idols that they worship. And they go, then during the summer break, they go back to their home in South Korea or Japan or mainland China. And oftentimes they'll again go back to homes where they'll see the idols in their home. What are the chances that they'll somehow, some way overcome that example of three and four generations? It's almost impossible. Those students know that if they ever came to the place to accept Christ as Savior, they'll probably be ostracized, disowned by their family. But when you grow up in a place where you've seen it all your life, and I've held some modular classes there, and I've had these students in my classes that the big question they ask over and over and over again is, what is our attitude towards our ancestors? Because when we go back to our island, whether it's Yap or Punapay, wherever it may be, when we graduate from this Christian college on Guam, when we go back to our islands to try to reach our people with the gospel, we are going to go face to face with three four generations of those that do not believe a thing that we hold dear. When you've got that many examples, over that much time, you can see how it can have an effect in your life. You can see how that iniquity of idolatry of your fathers, your grandfathers, your great-grandfather, will be visited upon you because you see it every day of your life. God looks upon idolaters as haters him, though they perhaps pretend to love him. Is it an unrighteous thing with God if the parents died in their iniquity and the children tread in their steps and keep up false worships because they receive them by tradition from their fathers? The Chaldean translation of this passage says it this way. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the transgressing children unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate me when the children follow the example of the fathers. I believe that's why the captivity, the Babylonian captivity, had to last 70 years. Why? Well, you tell me, what's the problem with the nation of Israel? What was the sin that really caused them to ultimately go into captivity? What was it? It was idolatry. Three and four generations. Average length of time, we're told even in Scripture, a man lives to be three score years and ten, if by reason of strength four score. The average person is an example to three and four generations. Exactly the length of the Babylonian captivity. It took God 70 years, three and four generations, to get the example of idolatry out of his people. How many here today, I'm going to ask you a question to wake you up right here. We're getting towards the end of the message. I want to make some very practical applications of how we can use this passage in our lives. But just to make my point, how many of you, 
I'd have to think about this. I've asked this question before, and I've had some people, they don't vote on anything. They don't raise their hand. So I'm still trying to figure it out. How many of you represent one of just exactly three living generations? Would you raise your hand? <laughs> I can tell the wheels are turning. I said exactly three, all right? Not four, not two, exactly three, because I'm going to ask the next question. How many of you today represent exactly four living generations in your family? And I can raise my hand there because my mother at age 93 is alive. I'm alive, and it's none of your business how old I am, but my children are alive, and they have children. I am one of four living generations. How many can join with me raising your hand saying, I am one of four living generations? Still getting very few hands. We got two or three at three, and then we got some more at four. How many have no idea what I'm asking? <laughs> All right. Thank you for being so honest. All right. All right. If you have great-grandparents and grandparents and you and children, you're good. Now, you can be anywhere in that spectrum. There's kids here tonight. You're the youngest. I don't know how many generations you got, brother, uh, but I know you're the youngest, and I don't know how many parents and grandparents you have, but you get the point. When God uses the expression three and four generations, he is basically saying that is the average life expectancy, that is the typical average number of generations that you and I will influence by our example. It's not DNA. It's not genetics. It is a wonderful, glorious truth tonight that you and I will influence our children, our grandchildren, and if God gives us breath, perhaps some of us here tonight will even have the privilege of being an example to some great-grandchildren. My wife and I are getting closer with every passing day, but nobody's married yet of our grandkids, so it's probably going to still be several years off. If the Lord gives us life for a few more years, we'll probably make it and be able to rejoice. And if my mother, amazingly, the health she is in at 93, now she does have dementia, but I have no doubt that she could live to be 100. Physically, she's doing great. The dementia that she has does not seem to affect her physically, which is amazing. But it could be. If one of our grandchildren will get married and have a child, that we will then represent five generations, my mother at one end of the spectrum and our great-grandchildren at the other end. Well, what's the point of all this? I think the key is Ezekiel 18, and I come towards the end of the message. I want to at least let you see this before we get real practical. Ezekiel 18 was the chapter that somebody shared with my mother when she was about to get married at the age of 21. I think it changed her life because she just lived under depression that what she would try to do as far as serving God was a waste of time because of what her dad was and that she couldn't change it at all. I hope you know Ezekiel 18. I hope you've read it through before. Starts off with a very interesting phrase in verse 2. What mean ye that you use this proverb concerning the land of Israel, saying, The fathers have eaten sour grapes, and the children's teeth are set on edge. Now God is saying, don't use that. 
Don't you dare get that really clever, cute expression that dad eats grapes and the kids go, Ugh. No, what dad eats doesn't have an effect on you, but that's the expression that was being used. Like when you drink orange juice after drinking milk or something, or whatever, lemonade with ice cream, those things that just don't go together and make your teeth just set on edge. Well, that's what it's describing here. So don't use that. You should never, never use that expression ever more. But let's look at verse 20 of Ezekiel 18. The soul that sinneth, it shall die. The son shall not bear the iniquity of the father, neither shall the father bear the iniquity of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon him, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon him. Very simply this. We are not victims, but we are responsible for our actions. We are not victims. We are responsible for our actions. Boy, we make up the excuses, don't we? Some can. Or the old game years ago, blame shifting. Well, I come from a dysfunctional family. Folks, we all come from dysfunctional families. We're all dysfunctional. Don't use that as an excuse. I loved one radio personality years ago now who made this statement that I, can, I never can forget. History is not destiny. History is not destiny. I care not what your history is. That is not your destiny. We are not victims, but we are responsible for our actions. Another thing it means for us, we can overcome a negative example by the grace of God. We can overcome a negative example by the grace of God. Don't use the examples you've had in your life as an excuse for why you are what you are. That is not what the Bible is teaching. Now, lo, it says in verse 14 of our passage, now, lo, if he beget a son that sees, there's the key, that sees all his father's sins which he hath done, and considereth, and doeth not such like. Then it goes on to tell us he's going to live and he's going to prosper. It is possible for someone to look at a lousy example and say in their heart of hearts, that's not for me. Aren't you glad for that? That God gives us the ability to overcome even the most wicked of examples in our life. Manasseh, I mean, the Bible's full of examples of that. Manasseh was a wicked king. He brought idolatry to God's people. He caused his own children to pass through the fire to Moloch, burning his own children to death, believing he was following the gods that ought to be followed. And yet he had a son named Josiah that brought revival to the land. I think of Korah. Korah meets his fate when the earth opens up and he's swallowed up. But then sometime read Psalm 84, Psalm 85, Psalm 87, Psalm 88. By the way, those little intros at the beginning of the Psalms, did you know that they are inspired? I've heard, I think I'm the only one I've ever heard preach on the little intros, but those are inspired. Those are in the Hebrew Bible. They are the first verse of each of those Psalms. And then the Psalm that we know, the Context then usually starts with verse 2. But those intros are inspired by God and are found in the Hebrew Bible. Anyway, 
Psalm 84, Psalm 85, Psalm 87, Psalm 88. Guess who wrote those? The sons of Korah. Hallelujah. Korah was a mess. A wicked sinner. Deserved what he got. But his children gave us four of the greatest psalms you'll ever read in Scripture. When I finished up this message a few years ago now, a young lady that was listening wrote me a little note afterwards. I've kept it all these years. Thank you so much for your message on Sunday night. For all of my 20 years of being in church, I've been taught that the reason for why I am the way I am is because of my parents' wrongdoing. And even if I tried to do right, their sin might reveal itself in my children making me wonder if I really ever wanted to get married and have any children. Thanks for clearing up this misunderstanding. I feel a whole lot better about my future. Thanks again. We are not victims. We can overcome an adverse example. But then let's not forget this wonderful, glorious, and sometimes sobering truth that we do influence the next generations. You'll see sometimes when great-grandparents come to church, they think they're off the hook, not tonight. The only way you get out of this message, if you happen to be a great-great-grandparent, then maybe you're, you're into that fifth generation, you don't need to worry about this. But for most of us here tonight, you have the wonderful privilege of being an example I remember watching my grandfather read the Bible. I can picture the scene in my mind right now at his house. He didn't really have recliners in those days, but he had a spot on the couch that was well-worn. And right next to it, a piece of carpeting that was well-worn because that's where he knelt to pray. And I thought about that many times. It can be for good and for evil. Abraham lied, and then Isaac decides to follow that example, and then Jacob followed that example, and so on. As all the kings are mentioned and introduced to us throughout the scriptures, we're told whether or not they walked in the same path as their ancestor. But it has to do with our example. How in the world can I expect my kids to go to church if I'm not setting the example? How in the world can I expect them to pray if I'm not trying to be the right kind of example in prayer? If I don't have the right kind of hobbies, the right kind of friends, I found it very interesting to ask my girls every once in a while, does dad have any friends that bother you? Do you have any friends that you just wish I did not have? I always like to check out and see what they're thinking. It can be quite opening at times. If I'm not watching my tongue or my temper, if I criticize leadership, I mean, I praise the Lord as I stand here tonight, all three of our girls are in what we call full-time Christian service, two preacher's wives and one Christian school teacher. And I get asked that all the time, what was the secret? And the answer is, I have no idea. I mean, I tried to raise them right, but I, I think the Lord, I think it's just mercy, really, but... At least one thing I remember we did try to do is we never sp spoke negatively of the ministry. 
And that doesn't mean we were in perfect ministries. Far from it. Far from it. Folks, whenever there are people, you're going to have problems. If we could somehow get rid of the people, we'd get rid of the problems. Amen. But it just doesn't work that way. Ministry is people. But I tried as best we could to just never let them know when we're having a tough time with perhaps other people in the ministry or circumstances were such that we could have really just exploded. But we tried to always look at it positively, and I believe at least in that area we accomplished our goal. They seemed to have a good spirit and a good attitude towards serving God, whatever God asked them to do. I remember one night that we were in a, a service together as a family, and it was a great invitation to people to come forward that I did not feel impressed to come forward. It's not that I haven't in the past, but I remember talking to our oldest at the time and saying, you know, if you ever, God ever works in your heart, in your life, you need, you need to go ahead and just don't be afraid to go to the altar if that's what they're asking or pray in your heart right where you are and just get things settled. And my oldest said it with the right attitude. I probably would have been real bothered if she'd said this with a, a smirk on her face, but she really wanted to know. And she said, well, Dad, when's the last time you went forward in a church service? When's the last time you knelt at an altar? When's the last thing that, time that you needed to get something right with God? Well, I had my excuses, as all brilliant dads have. Well, honey, you know, I'm the one usually doing a lot of the preaching. It'd be very awkward to preach a message and then respond to my own message. But she knew that I wasn't always the speaker, so that didn't fly. And I knew she was right. It had been a while since I'd ever really responded much at all to a message. Probably like everybody else, a little bit embarrassed that somebody might see me. I kind of forgot about that. It was, oh, I guess six months had passed, and we had another wonderful day where, as a family, we got to all be in church together. And when you're traveling and speaking, you don't always have that wonderful opportunity. So we were sitting in a family conference, and the speaker was speaking on the family and the responsibility of the husband and the wife and responsibility of the father and the mother and not provoking your children to wrath. I always wonder why that just says fathers. Why, why does it say mothers provoke not your children to wrath? Probably most of you know the answer. Women are of such a constitution, they don't tend to provoke children to anger. But us dads, we're real good at it. We can say things quickly, off the spot, off the cuff. Hope we can get away with it. So anyway, that night, that was one of the verses this man preached on. Fathers, it doesn't say mothers. It says, fathers, provoke not your children to wrath. Well, the Lord worked in my heart, worked in my life. And I went forward at the altar. And I knelt by myself for probably about 10 seconds. And then I could feel somebody nestled up against me, kneeling with me at the altar. It was my wife. And it just seemed like maybe 10, 15 seconds later, one by one, my three girls were all gathered around me at the altar. 
We got to pray together. And I realize I have no right to expect my girls or my grandchildren to do anything right for God if I'm not willing to be the example. Because just as the iniquity is visited, so can the right example be visited upon. Our children, our grandchildren, our great-grandchildren to three and four generations. Let's bow for a word of prayer. Thank you.